1: This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 408.
0: What I wanted to do, what my gifting was, was completely irrelevant. It was all about the cause, about duty, and I was going to fulfill my duty no matter what.
1: From the ashes of losing his family's 150-year-old media dynasty at a cost of $2.25 billion dollars, Warwick Fairfax has forged a philosophical and practical breakthrough that helps men and women from all walks of life bounce back from their own setbacks to become the leaders they were born to be. Hello and welcome. This is the Read to Lead podcast and my name is Jeff Brown. This is the podcast designed to help bring you the key insights and main ideas from some of today's best business books. I began the podcast nearly nine years ago because I believe that if you want to achieve true success in your business and in your life, an intentional and consistent reading is a must. Today, you and I will be joined by Warwick Fairfax. He's the author of Crucible Leadership, Embrace Your Trials to Lead a Life of Significance. I'm going to ask Warwick to share his views about how trying to be what others want you to be is one of the biggest mistakes you can make, the role of faith in defining your purpose, why character is the key link between your faith and how your faith manifests itself in leadership, and lots more. Well, since the release of my book last August, Read to Lead, The Simple Habit That Expands Your Influence and Boosts Your Career, requests for speaking and virtual and in-person workshop training has gone up considerably. In fact, I had the chance last month to do some virtual training for the company Docket. Docket helps you have the best meetings you've ever had. They're the only meeting productivity platform designed to make meetings better before they start while they're happening and long after they're over they integrate with zoom too which is pretty cool i had the chance to get in front of them and their staff last month for some virtual training here's what their ceo darren brown had to say i've always believed that the best employees have a growth mindset when it comes to learning and seek out new ways to add value jeff's virtual workshop training inspired my team to be intentional there's that word again about their reading as a source of learning. His step-by-step walkthrough covering how to select the right books for you and how to break down your reading so that you can get the greatest ROI has been invaluable. Again, that's Darren Brown, CEO and co-founder of Docket. Hey, if you're looking for a speaker for your next event, or I can help your team with virtual or in-person training like I helped Docket's team, reach out to me, Jeff, at com. That's Jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. Warwick Fairfax is the founder of Crucible Leadership, a philosophical and practical breakthrough in turning business and personal failures into fuel for igniting a life of significance. He's been hailed by Forbes as offering, quote, compelling insights for anyone who would like to wake up feeling inspired by their work, but doesn't. His insights are rooted in one of the most spectacular business failures in the history of his home nation of Australia. We'll learn more about that in a moment. He shares these insights and interviews other leaders on his Beyond the Crucible podcast. Warwick's new book is called Crucible Leadership, Embrace Your Trials to Lead a Life of Significance. Warwick, I am excited to have you on the show, excited to learn of your work, both your book and your podcast. I'm digging into that now. And and, and that's been a real treat. Welcome officially to the Read to Lead podcast.
0: Thanks so much, Jeff. Uh, Very much. uh, Grateful to be here.
1: Well, I want to start with a definition, this word crucible. Uh, A lot of people hear that word, I think, and they're they're kind of like, I I think I know what that means. Talk about what that means in this context. And if you would, uh, take us back 30, 35 years to What you consider your crucible moment, a moment that a few years later, you said, I was haunted by the thought that God had a plan for my life and I'd blown it. I think that's something a lot of people can identify with.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. So for me, a crucible is a life-defining moment, often a time of great pain. It could be a physical crucible. As you mentioned, we have a podcast Beyond the crucibles. we've had people that are like Navy SEALs have been paralyzed in a training accident, victims of abuse, financial failure. You know, there's all kinds of crucible, whether it's marital or relational breakup. So Mm. what a crucible is, it tends to be a life-defining moment. There was the time before the crucible and the time after. Mm. It tends to be incredibly painful. And so with that crucible moment, as we often talk about, is you have a choice. You can either be angry and bitter towards yourself or others. You can hide under the covers for the next 30, 40, 50 years and eventually, you know, life does end. Or you can say it was unfair or I was an idiot, which is more in my case, I was an idiot. <laughs> and uh, how do I bounce back? And so, you know, my crucible is, um, I grew up in a 150-year-old family media business in Australia. It was founded by a person of great faith, John Fairfax, in 1841. It grew to be an enormous company, like $700 plus in revenue, 4,000 employees, had TV, newspapers, magazines, radio, newsprint mills. It had the equivalent of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal of our country, the major opinion leaders. Mm. Uh, So we obviously had plenty of money, but not only that, we were respected uh, as a family that took its role seriously. Mm. The newspapers prided itself on being independent. Just because you knew a member of the Fairfax family, it would in no way, shape or form guarantee you good press. Mm. So, um, yeah. So basically growing up in that as this generation, my dad died in early 87. I was from his third marriage. Sadly, sometimes the more money, there can be more marriages, but Mm. Uh, my mother was married before. So once he died, I was in my last year at Harvard Business School, did my undergrad at Oxford, worked on Wall Street, got my MBA at Harvard Business School, or to prepare myself for this leading role one day in the company. Mm. And after he died, I guess I felt like management weren't making good decisions. And the vision maybe was the little line with the founder, whether that's true or not, is clearly a matter of opinion. Mm. It was my feeling, age 26 at the time. Young, naive, with all sorts of enthusiasm. So I launched this $2.25 billion takeover, ostensibly to change management, restore the vision of the founder. There were takeover rumors from corporate raiders. It's the 80s. Mm. And so very soon things into uh, problems. The rest of my family didn't want to be in a private company run by a 26-year-old. October 87, uh, crash happened. Mm. So by the end of 87, we all had too much debt. By the end of 1990, uh, straight got in a recession, and we went bankrupt. So, wow. hence uh, the quote is, um, I felt like I'd let my family down, my parents, uh, my ancestor, John Fairfax, and because I was a person of faith which came through an evangelical church, uh, Anglican mm. church at Oxford, I felt like God had a plan, and I kind of blew his plan, and um, maybe that was poor theology, but at the time, it felt crushing. So, basically, mm. in a nutshell, That was my crucible after late 1990. The company went on everything I dreamed of, everything I tried to achieve and preserve was over. And so I'm at age 30 thinking, well, now what do I do with my life? It's like, yeah, I was in a big, deep, dark pit, a massive hole at that point, a huge crucible for me.
1: And hearing all that, it's surprising to then read that you feel a bigger mistake, even than that takeover, was trying to be who others wanted you to be. What makes you say that?
0: Yeah. I mean, basically, you know, talk in the U S military about duty on a country. I mean, I was absolutely, it's almost like in the Bible talk about, you know, the prodigal son. I was like the good Mm. son that stayed home. I, you know, got good grades at school, uh, which Mm. only made things worse. Cause a lot of times kids are wealthy families. They're driving fast cars and doing all sorts of substance abuse. And that Mm. wasn't me. I, I worked hard, took life seriously. And so I felt like it was my duty. We weren't just making widgets. We were doing something that benefited the nation of Australia. It was like the sacred cause. How could you not go into it? Mm. It's really a bit like being in the Royal family. I mean, can you imagine Prince William saying to his dad and grandmother, yeah, I don't think I want to do this. It's tough. I mean, Harry basically is trying to get out and it's pretty tough. So I just felt like that wasn't an option. And so What I wanted to do, what my gifting was, was completely irrelevant. It was all about the cause, about duty, Mm. and I was going to fulfill my duty no matter what. So, yeah, I just absolutely was following that, uh, the line of duty, ancestors, dynasty.
1: Well, let's dig into some of uh, what you share, some of what you've learned since then that is talked about in the book. I want to start with this word, authenticity. And is and I'm sure you can identify, this is a word that gets thrown around a lot these days. I just read an article the other day about how almost tired that word is becoming. Uh, but why, in your view, is authenticity so important and at the same time, so hard for most people?
0: You know, I think it's it's hard because there's this fear of rejection. If they see the real me and they reject that, mm-hmm. they're rejecting my soul, everything that I am. And so if they reject my mask, it's not quite as big a deal. And so right. it's, there's this sense of, you know, I want to be, whether it's the the party person, the confident, the bombastic, the whatever. Uh, often I feel like the more bombastic the person, the more insecure. But that's sort of a personal pigeon. Uh, so to be the real you, it takes courage because what if they don't like me? What if I'm not who they want me to be? And so I think it takes it takes a lot of courage. But you know, if if you are, we live in a world where people are craving for authenticity, whether it's Hollywood or politicians, you see all these people that are, you know, every hair is in place, every, you know, they, <laughs> everybody looks perfect. But what's the real person, and we don't know. So people organizations, young people, they crave the authentic. So there's a tremendous opportunity, but it takes courage. It just mm-hmm. says, look, I'm going to be, and part of that gets into identity, which is a whole nother issue that I've, in recent years I've looked at is, you know, are you comfortable with who you are? are you Are comfortable within your own skin? If you're not, you won't be authentic. You will not have the courage. Mm-hmm. It really comes down to, and for people of faith, if you believe that you're loved by God or some divine uh, power, that if you really own that, that helps. But authenticity is hard and it's a whole nother discussion. And that really comes down to identity. I mean, do you, do you feel comfortable with who you are? But it, it, it's a tough one, but it, it takes real courage uh, to be authentic.
1: Mm. Part two of the book delves into something you were just hinting at purpose and, and then faith being a major component. Of purpose. I think one of the most straightforward and simple questions I can ask, and you pose this question in the book, and that is simply, why faith?
0: It's an interesting question. I mean, I'm very clear in the book and my blogs and podcast that I am a person of faith, became a Christian, so to speak, in an evangelical Anglican church at Oxford. I'm an elder of a non-denominational church in Annapolis, Maryland. But that's my truth. That's my faith. But I kind of have this thought that, you know, we have the God-given right to choose our own path. So, it could be another religion, whether it's, you know, Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, uh, Judaism. It could be a philosophy, a set of values, but we all have beliefs. We all, at our core, to say we have a soul. Which I think most, most people aren't religious these days, but most people are spiritual. Mm-hmm. I think there's a sense where we have a soul. Well, what makes you uniquely Jeff, or me uniquely work? What are our unique set of beliefs and values? And we need to dig down and kind of own that. And very often, as I've coached folks over the years, I'll say, "Well, help me understand your beliefs and values, and then help me understand if you're not if you if you're leading in light of that." And sometimes I say, well, I'm not really. And with a straight faith, this is a coach, mm-hmm. your objective. So, would you like to change your values and beliefs to bring it more in line with how you're leading? Or would you like to change how you lead to bring yourself more in line with your values and beliefs? Well, who's going to say, I'm going to change my deeply held beliefs? That would be, be hard to be a healthy psychological person and say that. <laughs> so, then it's like, gosh, I guess I need to bring my life In line with my beliefs, and it's not about what I believe; it's about Mm. what they believe. And so, you know, you you can't really have a life of significance, which we'll talk about later. You know, a life of purpose and meaning if you don't know who you are. at the At the core of who you are is what is it you believe? You know, Uh, Mm. so it's faith in that more general sense of the word, your beliefs and values.
1: That that immovable belief versus public opinion, which changes with the times, right?
0: Right, and that takes courage to lead from that anchor. Your fundamental beliefs. People crave those who may not agree with you on everything, but I know who you are. I know what you believe, and mm-hmm. you're going to make policy and business decisions in line with your beliefs. That's obviously we'll get into later, that sort of character living out your belief. But yeah, a lot of people don't do that, but people crave that kind of leadership. Talk about the relationship
1: between humility, integrity, uh, servant leadership. You talk about self sacrifice. How are these connected?
0: Yeah, I mean they're all components of character. Which as I was just kind of alluding to, faith in a real sense is lived out in character. In the book of James, I think it's James two. It says, talks about faith and deeds. If you say you believe in something, but you're not acting in light of it, James would say, argue, is that do you really believe what you say you believe? So mm. if you really believe it, you will live it out. And so for me, there are key components of what I call having good character. A humble person. Has a sober opinion of themselves. They don't think of themselves more than than they are. They don't think of themselves as better than anybody else. Mm. A person of integrity does what they say they'll do. You know, a person of servant leadership thinks about serving humanity and their team. Uh, Self sacrifice. It, it's not about me. It's about the team. It's about the wider good. It's not about my claim, my money. So, to me, at least from my perspective, those are all aspects of what good character is, which. In theory, uh, should be you living out your fundamental beliefs. I, I think most people don't believe in like, oh, I'm my beliefs are greed and stealing. And I think most normal, mm-hmm. functional, psychologically functional people have fairly altruistic beliefs. You know, whether it's maybe kindness or serving others. So it's really those are aspects of what it is to uh, live out your faith and uh, be a person of good character. Mm-hmm.
1: Like you, uh, I was blessed in school to have a teacher who sort of took me under his wing and piqued my curiosity. He was a music teacher in history, uh, particularly early American history, revolutionary history, more specifically. Tell me about Mr. And I'm hoping I'm pronouncing this correctly. Uh,
0: Petrosian.
1: Yeah, yeah, you got it. Who was he and, and what kind of impact did he have on, on your life growing up?
0: Yeah. I mean, as you allude to, uh, his, uh teachers can have a massive influence in our lives. And uh, so many people have said, gosh, I got into math, whatever it is, or nuclear physics because of a, a teacher in mm. school. And so uh, Mr. Petrosian was somebody that had physical challenges. His hands were turned inward. He could only shuffle. Um, so clearly life was not, he was born that way. Life was not easy, but he had this just tremendous laugh and just this you know, joy of life, choir de vivre, so to speak. His passion was American history. Now, this is Australia, you know, historically sort of British colony. I mean, obviously it's changed over the years, but I grew up in the sixties and seventies. And, uh, but he loved American history and my dad loved history, but more European history. Mm. And so he just made it fun. He would play the campaign songs of presidential songs from the early 1800s and 1830s, forties. They were very hokey. Stuff You know, Andrew Jackson and all. I mean, it just yeah. it wouldn't work in today's political climate. It would work back then. He was just a person of courage. And, you know, one amusing anecdote is uh, he would always tease me about the Sydney Morning Herald, the main paper we had, the Herald. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, fish and chips are big in England and Australia. And he said, you know, I love the City Morning Herald. I just love just the, the taste of the ink as it sort of marinates the <laughs> fish. They sort of call it the fish wrapper. And he would constantly do it. But yet it was done in a way that I found amusing. He wasn't laughing at. He was like with me. Mm. It was so He wasn't like treating me as... Mr. High and Mighty, you know, sort of heir to the family fortune. It's just, I don't know, something about that was very endearing, which it's hard to understand why, but somehow it was, you know, he just, he just kidded about it, you know? So yeah, he was a great guy, very authentic. And um, uh, the way he overcame his challenges, and just had a smile on his face every day. It was just inspiring to me.
1: Mm. I want to go back to something I meant to ask uh, earlier in in it's this topic of character. We, we, we touched on it just a little bit, but I want to ask you what you mean when you say that character is a key link between uh, your faith and how your faith manifests itself in leadership. Can you expound on that a little bit?
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, saying you're a person of faith or you have these beliefs, that's great, but um, you know, you've really got to kind of walk the talk. And, you know, when you have people that, um, say they have certain beliefs, uh, you know, like a lot, of, a lot of companies or Enron, for instance, you know, say yeah, we're all about people and caring and obviously, you know, it's a massive debacle and rip people off. So um, it's really living what you believe. And it's it's not common enough. So when it happens, it's so compelling when you can say Joe or Mary, you know, when when they say they believe in certain things, that's who they are every day they're looking to care for people. Every day, they're looking to praise people on their team. Every day, they're looking to uplift others and not themselves. When you can do that every day, like breathing, we're, we're all going to fail. Mm. But when, when the, the norm of your life, the sum total of your life is you live life on purpose, caring for others, you may be, as Jim Collins writes in Good to Great, you know, maybe driven, but yet you're humble. That kind of living what you believe is striking. And, and unfortunately, all too rare.
1: Mm, uh, yeah, that's for sure. Um, I think something that all of us appreciate about leaders is those who are self-aware. They understand and and recognize their strengths and and their weaknesses. What what are some of the things we can do, in your view, to become more self-aware?
0: I think the first step is wanting to be self-aware. <laughs> some people are like I don't care who I am. I'm I'm not a navel gazer. I'm just action man, action woman, let's go, which is not a good way to lead. To be mm. a good leader, you've got to be reflective. Hence, read the lead definitely helps <laughs> you reflect by reading some great leadership books, no question. Mm. So part of it is wanting to be self-aware. And then once you want to, you can take assessments and there's a lot of good ones, whether it's you know Myers, Briggs, Strengths Finders, DISC, a lot of good ones, but just asking friends, family, longtime co-workers hopefully in a non-threatening way, well, sort of, you know, who am I? And the thing is because the people that have been around us for decades, they know, like our friends and family, they know exactly who we are. Mm. If you got them all in a room and say, who's Warwick, who's Jeff? I think you'd probably have 98, 99% agreement mm. about who we are. And they'd pretty much be spot on. It's not a secret. People know who we are. So, you know, kind of, I think, ask. I mean, thats um, it's this desire to want to know It's the desire to ask. And um, it's not for the faint of heart. You've got to be willing to go. You've got to be willing to hear the truth. Now, if your identity is in something a bit more eternal, it's a little easier to hear the truth because we're all going to have flat sides. We can be impatient. We can get a little angry at times. We can be impulsive, whatever it is. It doesn't make us a bad person just because we have certain characteristics. Mm. So it comes back to identity too. You've got to be brave enough and say, look, no matter what I hear, I'm going to hear it, learn from it, grow. It doesn't make me an evil person necessarily just because of the answers I get. It may, but in most cases it won't.
1: You know, there's, there's so much swirling around in my head that I could ask. I know our time is growing short. Um, I do want to talk a bit about your dad. I mentioned before we started recording that I think he and I have a lot in common from uh, rooting for sports teams in other cities, even though the city we live in has a sports team. We've been here for twenty five, thirty five years. Yes, uh, to being more comfortable, uh, you know, spending a night reading than socializing. Um, what what kind of man uh, was your dad?
0: You know, in one sense, he was like me in that he grew up in the family business like me. I don't think he had a choice, but mm-hmm. um, he would have been a better philosophy professor. I mean, I like to think I'm reasonably intelligent. I mean, have an Oxford and have a business school degree, but On the other hand, he spent every night reading, whether it's a history book, a book of philosophy, religion. He wrote books on like comparative religion, uh, the triple Abbas purpose. I mean, there's a serious, almost impenetrable uh, book. So, he was a very Mm. learned person, but yet he was curious. He loved to learn. So, while he was probably moderately conservative, one of his best friends was Bob Hawke, a former Labour prime minister. And at one point, head of the trade unions, and certainly earlier on in his life, uh, I think he would call himself a Marxist. I think he evolved more into just more regular labor, if you will, progressive. Their views on policies were radically different, but yet they were friends because he had this intellectual curiosity. So I just admired that honest search for truth, that willingness to realize he had his beliefs, but other people had every right to their beliefs. There was sort of an intellectual. Uh, Integrity that that went with that, and um, he had this desire to do the right thing. In the Second World War, one of his uh, good friends was Sir Robert Menzies, who was mm. one of the most famous long-serving prime ministers in Australian history. And he and his first wife and Robert Menzies were good friends. Well, in the forty-one election, I think it was, he believed the uh, the Labor guy John Curtin was the better one to lead Australia. Even though they were good friends. Well, needless to say, Menzies never forgave my father for that mm. editorial. And, uh, I don't know that they really spoke ever again. Now, later on, he became prime minister for, I don't know, 15, 20 years. It's not like his career was over, but that, that sense of it's about doing what's right, irrespective of whether we're friends or not, what's right for the country, that sense of integrity. Uh, mm. I mean, that, it's just that kind of inspiration, that kind of role model is, is something you just never forget.
1: So, so there's this friend who, who never forgives him for that editorial. Then on the flip side of that, your father was eventually forced to resign by family, but he, he had a different response, didn't he?
0: Yeah, it's an astute question. So in 1976, some other family members who had tried to remove his chairman in 1961, after a very difficult divorce from my father's second wife and his marriage to my mother, in 76, They had enough shares. The company was about 50% held by uh, the family and sort of two out of three large shareholdings. And they felt he was like 74 at the time and great health. And, uh, you know, for whatever reason, they felt like he needed to go. And I was 15 at the time. So I was devastated. Like, how in the world could they do that to my father? And he was Mm -hmm. devastated and thought briefly and tried to oppose it. But he thought for the sake of the company and frankly, for my sake, as he would see me as the heir apparent uh, one day. He decided the best thing for me and 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 the family was not to do anything. And in his own way, and I don't pretend it was perfect because it's you know we're all human, he did try to forgive them. And while I have more of an evangelical faith, he was more of a faith in a more of a general sense. He said to me, Well, I asked him, How could you do this? And he said, Well, I believe this is what God would want me to do. And so I don't pretend it was perfect, but in his own way, he really did li- live what he believed and, and lived his faith. And that that was just remarkable to me that um getting stabbed in the back by family members in some case, close family members. I mean look, maybe they were right. I don't know. I didn't think that at the time. I probably mm-hmm. still don't, but who was right or wrong is less relevant as just the integrity and really this maybe it's self-sacrifice, but just it's not about me. It's about my, you know, me and future generations and just that that sense of putting others first. Uh, It was truly remarkable. It's just something I've never forgotten.
1: Mm, What a great story. I want to ask about some of your favorite books. I'm going to head off a possible answer you might give At the pass, I'm going to take the Bible off the table here. I don't know if you you had thought about saying that, but.
0: uh, No, I I hadn't, but thanks for saying that. Maybe I should have.
1: I I, I respect that. You know, it's certainly one of them uh, for me as well. Sure. sure. By the way, side note, I I think I remember reading toward the beginning of your book one of your favorite uh, passages being Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Is that right? Absolutely. There was a radio show I did for about eight years, and I signed off with that verse every show.
0: Yeah, I, I love it. Was it like, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not in your own understanding and all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. Something like that. So yeah, yeah. one of my favorites.
1: Well, uh, with the Bible a given, let's talk about what some of your favorite, most impactful books have been over the course of your career.
0: I'd say they're in two categories, which won't surprise you, business and history. Mm. Business, obviously things like Good to Great, Jim Collins. Level five leaders being uh, driven yet humble. The leadership challenge by Kuz and Posner. One of the best treatises on uh, leadership. Everybody likes Patrick Lencioni. Five dysfunctions of a team. Oh, yeah. uh, it's such truth there. But I think really, obviously, you know, your listeners uh, are readers. I think it's great to read business books. I'm all for it. But read history books, and historians don't write history books for leaders per se. They're historians. They're trying right. to capture an accurate history. So, for instance, when I read A Team of Rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin about Abraham Lincoln and his team, the way he gelled that team from people who thought he was this idiot country bumpkin from Illinois, which back then was the West, to mm-hmm. being somebody that they thought was the greatest leader that I'd ever seen, and that's true leadership. Uh, forged in crisis by Nancy Kane. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I love English history. So I've got Roger Knight the here, the victory about uh, Admiral Nelson and... Uh, Richard Holmes uh, about the Duke of Wellington. I love history, so anybody who wants to uh, learn about leadership, get the best biography you can about the historical leader you most admire and look at it from a leadership lens.
1: I, I can second that. That teacher who got me interested in, in American history, I went through several years of reading presidential biographies and early American history books. I've got a whole shelf. Well, this has been a real treat, Warwick. I uh, really have enjoyed talking to you. Warwick's book, again, is called Crucible Leadership, Embrace Your Trials to Lead a Life of Significance. Thank you so much, Warwick, for taking time out of your day to, to be with us. I know we originally had this scheduled for. A different day and i changed it on you just a week or two ago and you were gracious enough to to say yes to to the new time so thank you for that and thank you for being here i really appreciate it
0: uh all good and thank you so much jeff and uh, for having me and i really appreciate what you do and this is a thoughtful reflective space which i love that's my language is <laughs> reflective so thank you for what you do.
1: Well, a lot of book recommendations there from Warwick. I'm always open to those. If you'd like to check those out, I've listed them all on the show notes page for this episode. You can find that in the other links and resources he mentioned at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 408 for episode 408. Hey, if you noticed some goofy things going on with the podcast last week, maybe you got it a day later than usual. Yeah, we had some feed issues. I think we've got them all sorted out. Depending on the app you're using, you might actually see for past episodes, two iterations of past episodes. Still trying to get that sorted out. If you want to listen to every episode twice, that's awesome. (laughs) But I I imagine you don't. So we'll try to to work that out so you don't have two episodes of everything showing up in your feed in the future. Uh, Thank you for putting up with those issues. I think we're close to having them all worked out, uh, but hope you didn't mind terribly waiting an extra day or two for last week's episode to drop. And a great one it was. Again, that book, The Confident Mind, one of the best books I've read in quite a long time. Hey, reach out to me, Jeff, at readtoleadpodcast.com if I can help you and your team with virtual or in-person training related to reading, getting more out of the books you read, putting what you're reading into action, maybe helping with a book club, and then also personal and professional development more generally. If I can help with any of those things, let me know, Jeff, at readtoleadpodcast.com. Coming up during the month of February, we've got Chris Bistriansky on the way. Also, that author I mentioned during my chat with Warwick, Dan Rome. And next week, we'll be featuring Natalie Kogan. That does it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead.